Now, <clears throat> one thing that we've been seeing quite clearly as we've been looking through um, the book of Joshua and really the campaign of Israel coming into the promised land and, and their call to, you know, wipe out the inhabitants of, of Canaan and to take the land and take the cities. One thing that we've been seeing very clearly is that Israel needed to rely on the Lord and be sure that they were seeking the Lord as they were moving ahead. Now, they've learned that lesson the hard way, thinking as they came up to Ai, they're going to have no problem. It's a small city next to Jericho. Jericho, man, we've seen the walls come down. Ai is going to be no problem for us. Well, we saw last time we were together how they came in with overconfidence after a victory in Jericho. One thing that we know is that those victories that we have in and through the Lord are not meant to bring about overconfidence in ourselves. They're meant for us to continue to walk with confidence and trust and faith in the Lord. Victory should never cause us to relax or let our guard down because we do know, as Peter says, that we have an enemy that walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So it's super important that we remain dependent on the Lord in all things. It's a lesson Israel has already had to go through in AI, but it's a lesson that they still need to learn. And we're going to see that here tonight. Before you begin to look at Israel and be like, oh, Israel, come on, get it together. How many times have we had to learn the same lesson over and over and over again, right? But isn't that the faithfulness of God to continue to work in us and lead us into all that he has for us. So look at chapter nine, verse one. We read there that it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard about it. They've heard about Israel coming in. They've heard about the conquest over Jericho and now over Ai. So it says in verse two that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. So what's interesting is that we see all these kings now and talking about on this side of the Jordan, on the, on the west side of the Jordan, so into the land of, of Canaan now, and all these kings that have been previously enemies with one another, they've been jockeying, having to fight and kind of really wrestle through things with one another. Now they're coming together in unity. It's interesting how having a common enemy can do that. Well, they've seen that now with Israel. Here's an enemy or here's a potential enemy that's a greater threat than the rest of us are to each other. And so they figure our only hope is to ally together and try and stop them. Stop them. So all these kings, they were leaders over these city-states there in, in Canaan. And so all these kings, they, they are hearing about all these exploits of Israel gaining ground. Now the enemy is going to be fast at work in the same way to prevent you from moving ahead in the things of God. And that's what we're seeing here in this journey of Israel, how the enemy is quick to come together. And he's gonna, you know, put fear into you, try to put fear into you and try and make you think, listen, it's not worth it to forge ahead. Just stay where you are. Just, just be content with what you got. It's not gonna be worth it to forge ahead. Or he's gonna come in with trickery and try to get you off course by deception. Like we saw in, in 1 Peter 5, 8, he comes at us like a roaring lion at times, but at other times, he comes at us like that slippery, scheming serpent. 
Look at what we read in verse three. But now when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. And all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. Verse six, and they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we've come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So these Gibeonites, now they're from the territory of the Hivites. These were some of the people listed in, in verse one. Perhaps they recognize now they're in Gibeon. They're kind of next up on the list. So they've been camping out. Israel's been camping out at Gilgal. And they come to Jericho, they defeated Jericho. They moved over to Ai there. They defeated Ai. But now next kind of on the list, moving into the country in this Southern campaign that they were moving on first is Gibeon. And so Gibeon here is in Hivite country. They're the ones that were mentioned there in the first verse of this chapter. And so they're thinking, you know what? By the time all these kings kind of make their way over to us, we're already gonna be easy pickings. And so they're beginning to think maybe we better take matters into our own hands and rather than fall prey to Israel before the rest of the coalition of kings comes together, maybe we'll try a, a different option here, an alternative action, one of deception. So they make themselves appear like they're from a distant land. They've traveled a long way and they're just wanting to you know, move about in peace. So they come to Joshua and Israel and say, hey, why don't you make a covenant with us? We don't mean any harm. We're just passing through. We're from a distant land. We're not gonna stick around. They're looking for a peace treaty here. But everything about them is a complete sham. Look at these methods of deception. First of all, they worked craftily. Now, it's important that we do not underestimate our enemy because he's crafty, he's sly. Those are the very, you know, Characteristics of Satan, he's, he's cunning and he's clever. Paul had to warn the church at Corinth about the craftiness of the enemy, saying in 2 Corinthians eleven three. but I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. He's worried that the enemy is gonna kind of lead them away in deception, away from Christ through cunning and craftiness. Now, the King James Version says that these Gibeonites worked wily. That's kind of like reminds me of Wiley Coyote, Roadrunner. Anybody with me on that, right? We all remember the Roadrunner's always up to his skis, trying to take down the Roadrunner, right? He's, he's scheming, he's, he's cunning, never worked for him, right? And that's kind of the same as the devil, like he's constantly trying, but he's already defeated. But he's at work, nonetheless, to try to take you down and take you out. That's the tactics of our enemy. We're told in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's wily, he's crafty, and we need to be on guard of these things. We need to understand how the enemy loves to work and he comes at us in deceptive means very craftily. Secondly, though, we see with the Gibeonites, they, they pretended. In other words, they, they misrepresented themselves. Isn't that what Satan does too for us? He comes in a way that represents something good, something maybe helpful, but it's a complete act. Again, it never lives up to that. In fact, the Bible says that he pretends so much he sometimes come as an angel of light. And many have been deceived thinking that he's got something good in store for them. 
how we need to watch that we don't fall prey to the false attractions of something failing to realize what's truly hidden behind it. Again, being on guard. And then number three, these Gibeonites, they, they gave false evidence. So again, they, they tricked the Israelites into believing that they're believing their story based on you know, false evidence that they presented, old sacks on their donkeys, uh, mended wineskins, tattered garments, their shoes were all worn out, they had moldy bread. Again, the enemy loves to give a false representation of what he can actually do. He promises people great things, but can never truly produce. He lures people in with revealing something that he promises or something he says he can give you or secure for you, but it ends up more like what the Gibeonites had, moldy, crusty goods that never can satisfy. He comes at us with false evidence, pretends he's crafty. We need to be on guard from the kind of deception that's at work in the world and, and by the enemy looking to bring people down and get them off track from where the Lord wants to take them. Continue on in verse seven. It says that the then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, hey, perhaps you dwell among us. So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, no, we're your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? Where do you come from? So they said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon and Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. Verse 11, therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us, this bread of ours. We took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you. But now look, that's dry and moldy. And these wine skins, which we filled were new and see they're torn. These are our garments and our sandals that become old because of the very long journey. So again, these guys are really building a case for themselves. They're really, you know, pulling out all the stops here. And the men of Israel and Joshua seemed to have a bit of intuition about these guys. Like they're questioning them, like, how do we know you're not really among us? Why should we come to you? They had some kind of feeling of, of, of question and wonder, but they didn't really follow through on it. I wonder if the Lord wasn't already communicating, stirring their hearts in this, and yet they just kind of dismissed it. How often do we, you know, dismiss that prompting of the Lord is, they go, ah, oh, that can't really be the Lord. That's just gotta be our own thinking or, or reasoning or speculation on this. That can't really be the Lord. How we need to, you know, take time and, and just really look to the Lord and respond to him. So the Gibeonites, they break out this, again, this fabricated story, this outright lie. And notice you know, when they said, we've heard about the fame of God, we've heard what he did uh, in Egypt and all he did to the two kings of the Amorites. He doesn't mention Jericho or Ai. They're, again, they're very clever. Because if they mentioned Jericho and Ai, it would kind of be a giveaway that, oh, they must be localized people. They've heard about the recent things happening in the land. They don't even mention that. They just talk about recent things or things that have happened in Israel's past and, and in their previous dealings coming over to Canaan. And so they're, again, very clever, not giving any kind of giveaway that they're local people. So, verse 14, the men of Israel took some of their provisions, 
but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. Now these are sad words to read and especially since they should have learned the lesson from going presumptuously against AI. When they looked at the situation and the conditions of AI on a physical level and thought, this is gonna be a piece of cake for us next to Jericho. Compared to what we had to deal with in Jericho and, and seeing what God did, AI is a cinch. They looked at things on a physical level and yet here they are once again. They acted based on what they saw on a physical level and again, they acted impulsively. They trusted their senses rather than turning to the Lord and seeking him. They looked at what the Gibeonites held up and they walked by sight rather than by faith. Again, it reveals to us right here, verse 14, where their mistake originated in. They did not ask counsel of the Lord. I mean, underline that in your Bibles if you don't have that marked and let that be a warning for us. Because what problems we get ourselves into when we think we have the answers or the solutions and we rely on our own wisdom rather than consulting the Lord and seeking the Lord and saying, God, what do you have for me in this situation? Lord, what direction do you have for us here? Alan Redpath wrote this. Never, never, never trust your own judgment in anything. When common sense says that a course is right, lift your heart to God for the path of faith and the path of blessing may be in a direction completely opposite to that which you call common sense. When voices tell you that action is urgent, that something must be done immediately, refer everything to the tribunal of heaven. Then, if you're still in doubt, dare to stand still. If you're called on to act and you have no time to pray, don't act. If you're called on to move in a certain direction and cannot wait until you have peace with God about it, don't move. Be strong enough and brave enough to dare to stand and wait on God. For none of them that wait on him shall ever be ashamed. This is the only way to outmatch the devil. Those are good words for us. Are we quick to move ahead based on what seems to be just normal, common sense to, to seem like, oh, this is a, uh, you don't have to, Think about this. This is an obvious answer here. Are we quick to move on with things before just giving it over to the Lord and saying, God, I pray that you would be in this decision, that, that this would, would be a decision from you, that you will lead and direct me in this. How we need to take everything to the Lord in prayer. Ephesians 6 uh, goes through the whole armor of God, and yet... That whole armor of God ends with verse 18 saying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We should be in the habit of praying through all things, taking everything to the Lord in prayer. Israel thought, oh, this is a no-brainer. This is obviously a no-brainer here. Of course, look at what they've got. Look at all their supplies. Of course, they must be from a distant land. According to their senses, it seemed like just common sense that these Gibeonites were telling the truth. Sometimes, you know, you look at the decisions people make and you wonder if there is such a thing as common sense anymore, right? You kind of go, sometimes you go, well, it seemed like a really bad decision that you made there. Sometimes we feel like where there is some common sense that will be enough to go on, we go, that's, that's gotta be okay. And we do live in a world where our senses are important 
but they're not enough for us to rely on and to hinge the soul decision upon. These are important in the natural material realm, but there's the spiritual realm by which we must seek the Lord and be sure that we're being led of the spirit. Proverbs 3, five and six, well-known passage, probably one that many people know. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Give it to the Lord. Turn to the Lord. Seek the Lord. Say, God, I want to acknowledge you in this situation. It seems like there's an obvious thing to do, but Lord, before I do that, I want to seek you and acknowledge you and say, God, if there's something that I'm missing, show me, reveal me, reveal it to me. Help me in this. Now, remember, just like Israel, we're living in enemy territory and we need to exercise constant caution. We need to be careful that we're not making partnerships with the enemy and doing so sometimes unwillingly as Israel and Joshua is doing. And we do that when we fail to be led of the Lord and we make decisions that seem right to us. We must always be certain that we're following God's word because the Bible already has given us counsel for many of the decisions that we need to make. I mean, when we just simply look to the word and follow the word, there's enough there for us that really helps us to be guided in, in wisdom and according to the will of God, there's enough right there for us. And in fact, the Bible was already clear for Israel and, and Joshua of what to do in these matters because it tells us in Deuteronomy 7, verse one four, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. Notice this, you shall make no, what? Covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. I'll stop right there. Shall make no covenant with them. Now again, <clears throat> Israel thought these people were, were from a faraway land and they thought, well, this covenant, you know, it's probably inconsequential. Nevertheless, they did not follow what God had for them. And that's how the devil loves to try and tempt us with things. He makes it seem like it's just an inconsequential matter. It's really not a big deal, guys. You can go ahead and move forward in this. You can go ahead and take that action. It's not really gonna be a big deal. It's not really any problems that can arise from that. The devil loves to make those things seem like they're an inconsequential matter, that it's not gonna really affect your relationship with the Lord. And yet, when we follow that, we sometimes allow compromise in certain areas. And then he comes and he spreads further deception until we've been pulled into areas that we never intended to be. Beware of compromise. Beware of thinking that it's a small matter, that it's not really going to have consequences because it will when we walk away from what the Lord has for us. Now Joshua quickly realized that he had made a pretty huge blunder here. Look at what we read, verse 16. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Beeroth, and Kiriath, Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them 
because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel and all the congregation complained against the rulers. So it didn't take long before they realized they'd been duped here. Now to their credit, they could have come to their cities in a rage and gone just full on ballistic against them, right? You could have even justified that by the way that they were lied to. Joshua could have said, well, you know what? They lied to us. This covenant isn't, you know, grounded on anything truthful. So let's just take them out. They could have been justified in doing that. But Israel made a covenant with them and they knew to break that would bring a worse problem on them. So those that made the decision had to face the music and the complaints of the people, but they kept their word. That's a reminder, I think, for us not to be quick to make vows because whatever you promise, you need to be sure you keep your word no matter if you were duped into making that promise or that vow. God's a God that desires us to keep our word. Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 says, better not to vow than to vow and not pay. It's a serious thing. How God desires us to be those that are people of our word because God is a promise keeping God. And that goes in many things. And I think one of the things that could be applied to this is marriages. See, when you get married, you're making a vow of commitment. Sometimes people feel, well, they have a bit of an escape clause because the person they are with five years down the road isn't really the same person I married. You know what? This person I married five years ago, well, they're a completely different person. I've been duped. I have a way out. I'm justified to get out of this marriage. You know what? You've made a vow. And that vow wasn't conditional upon if this person remains exactly the same as they were when you married them that day. That That vow wasn't conditional upon everything going your way. That vow was a a vow that you made until death to remain married because that's important to God. Doesn't matter, you made vows that are to be upheld. Pray the Lord will turn things around for good rather than looking for a way out. And we can commend Israel in this situation because they didn't look for a way out. They looked to how they can uphold this. Well, verse 19 We read this, and all the rulers said to all the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This this we will do to them. We'll let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore to them. So they knew. And the ruler said to them, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers had promised them. Then Joshua called for them and he spoke to them saying, why have you deceived us saying we are very far from you? When you dwell near us, now therefore you're cursed and none of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So the answer Joshua said, well, because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore, we were very much afraid for our lives because of you. And that's why we've done this thing. Verse 25. And now here we are. We're in your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So he did to them and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel so that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters 
and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. Here we see Joshua, he admits his mistake and yet he makes his mistake work for him. He will use these deceivers now to be servants, to be servants of Israel and servants around the tabernacle, the house of the Lord. A little later in scripture, we're gonna see these Gibeonites referred to as the Nethanim. First Chronicles 9, 2, for instance. Nethanim means given ones. And you see, I think Joshua, what he saw was, here's some people that God has given to be a help to Israel. See, God redeemed that which seemed like a failure. And he does that in our lives time and time again. And he does that in us and through us, right? When we make mistakes, when we blow it, God doesn't write us off. God doesn't dismiss us. He redeems those things. He turns it around, brings good out of it. Now, what's interesting is that we're gonna see that the inhabitants of Gibeon were, were mighty men, all right? Chapter 10, verse two will tell us that. In other words, though they were strong men, they had a fear and a knowledge of the Lord. And because of that, instead of standing up to say, well, you know what? We're gonna fight against Joshua. They come against us. They humbled themselves. They were strong men, but yet they humbled themselves and became servants. They saw that their lives have been spared and now they're probably rejoicing being able to be servants in the house of God under the Lord's presence and protection. This is a pretty good deal for them. Do we share that same kind of heart? Can we rejoice in the fact that we're called to lay our lives down humbly and, and simply live for the Lord, to serve him, to be used of him? See, if we recognize all that we do is for the Lord, then we can truly rejoice in all that we do. We don't need to have high positions of, of grandeur. We don't need to have, you know, these places where we feel like we're the ones calling the shots. God's called us just to come and humble ourselves under him and serve him. And that's the place that we're truly going to be able to rejoice just as these Gibeonites are now doing. Now, it's amazing to see all that God has done so far. So far, from chapters one to nine, we've seen Israel come into land, defeat some some huge cities, and yet we've seen God save a prostitute. And now he saves some lying foreigners. I'm so grateful that he saves sinners like you and me and blesses us with a rich heritage in him. Yes, the Lord has called the people to come to the land and to take out the people, and yet God is sparing people. Spares the Gibeonites. Later on, in fact, God's gonna uphold his vow so much that later on when... Uh, when Saul is seeking to take out and exterminate the Gibeonites, God brings judgment upon them and he protects the Gibeonites. Now, moving into chapter 10, if you thought you'd seen some amazing things from God so far, <laughs> if you thought the defeat of Jericho was impressive, wait till you see what's in store for us here. Look at chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and his king. So he had done to Ai and his king and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were mighty, as we had said earlier. 
Therefore, verse three, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhiah, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. <laughs> Gibeon's not out of the woods yet. <clears throat> but what's interesting is we see this all originating from Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. This is the first time that Jerusalem is mentioned in the Bible. It's right here in Joshua chapter 10. And what's neat is we've seen and been introduced to a previous king, Melchizedek. Though he wasn't named the king of Jerusalem, he was the king of Salem. Many believe that was speaking of Jerusalem. Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Adonai Zedek means Lord of righteousness. So what's really interesting is that this city has such a special providence and it all, or uh, has a history, a special providence and all points to the one who is ultimately gonna come and rule and reign from this place in ultimate righteousness. But here we see the first king's mention of Jerusalem all have tied to it this note of righteousness here. So these five Canaanite kings, again, led by Adonai Zedek, they're all upset now with the Gibeonites because they've seen them go and make a covenant with, with Jerusalem, uh, with Israel, sorry. They were to be the ones that were gonna form this, you know, uh, coalition of, of armies and city-states, and yet they've kind of abandoned that and made a covenant with Israel. So now they're getting a little bit upset. So they're gonna come after Gibeon and seek to teach them a lesson now. We read in verse five, Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered together and went up, they and all their armies encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua the camp at Gilgal saying, do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly, save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So now, all the inhabitants here of, of Gibeon, seeing their dire dilemma, they reach out to Joshua for help. We're your servants. Hey, we're one of you now. Please come to our aid. Help us out. Now, how would you respond to some people that have swindled you in a covenant that you know you wouldn't have made if you knew all the facts? How would you respond to this kind of plea for help, right? Joshua could have easily replied, hey, listen, we only agreed not to harm you ourselves. We can't control what others are gonna do to you. You're on your own here, guys. In fact, they're probably going, good, they're getting what they deserve, right? That's probably how I would have maybe handled that in my, in my sin. That's how I would have handled it. But look at what Joshua does. Let's read on in verse seven. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. I mean, this is getting exciting, isn't it, guys? It's incredible stuff. But what we see is Joshua coming to their aid. And he ascended from 
Gilgal, as we saw earlier on that map, from Gilgal all the way up to, to Gibeon to defend them. And that was no small task. It's 25 miles away and up a 4,000 foot incline. It was a costly mission. But it's a great picture of our greater than Joshua, Jesus. You see, Jesus comes to our aid in times of trouble. Even though we're undeserving, even though we're unworthy, he climbed that hill of Calvary to rescue us by his love and his grace and commitment to us. That's amazing. Now, what's also very amazing in this is the Lord reminds Joshua not to fear because God's doing a work in all of this. And Joshua, I've been thinking, God, can I not catch any breaks here? Like, what's going on? And yet, notice what we read there in verse eight. God says, I've delivered them into your hand. See, there'll be times that we look at our mistakes and think, man, I've just totally blown it. I've, I, I've really made a mess of this. How am I gonna get through this? But yet, we see in Joshua 10, how God took Joshua's blunder, which was making a treaty, with the Gibeonites and how God now has turned that around into a blessing. How? Well, this five king confederacy is gonna come marching together and they're gonna show up at Joshua's doorstep and be an easy target for Joshua and the Israelite army to come against them. Israel's not gonna have to go from city to city in multiple campaigns against army after army. He's got them all coming right to them to where they're gonna be able to take them all out at once. God's doing a work. Delivering them right to Joshua. How cool is that? Is that awesome? Just how God, man, when we commit ourselves to the Lord, though we might blow it, we might make mistakes, we say, Lord, help me to continue to honor you. And God can turn those things around and do a work through it. Look at the progression here, Joshua, moving ahead in this battle. Here's a progression of, of Joshua. Promise, first of all. He's going forth, knowing what God has promised him. And that is that, that God's going to be with him. Don't fear. I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man, not a man of them shall stand before you. So God assures him that the victory is there. So too, God's given us many great promises that are there for us to lay claim to in God's word. Romans 8, 31 and 37. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Yet how many times do we question that? How many times do we think, how am I gonna manage this? How am I gonna get through this? How am I gonna, gonna handle this situation yet? Do we reflect on this promise? Do we hold on this promise? If God's for us, who can be against us? Goes on to say, yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He's already made you more than a conqueror. He's not asking you to go out and, and, and conquer. He's done the work. He's, he's already allowed you to be more than a conqueror. And he's done that because he loves you. Do we hold on to those promises? Secondly, we see this participation of Joshua. Joshua wasn't to sit back now passively waiting for God to do the work. Well, God, you said you're gonna deliver them to us. So I'm just waiting. I'm just sitting back. I'll let you take care of it all. Well, Joshua knew that God is going to do his part, but God also has a part for us to play. God wants us partnering with him. We know the Bible says that faith without works is dead. This is not, now this is not the, you know, God helps those who help themselves kind of thing. That's, that's not in the Bible. 
maybe in the book of hallucinations, right next to, you know, godliness is next to cleanliness, right? It's kind of in there somewhere, but this was simply Joshua responding to God's word and taking part in what God was saying that he would do. Again, God does his part, but he also has a part for us to play. And we walk in obedience to God's word. It seems so often that everything just begins to fall into place so nicely. In this case, it's large hailstones that are falling into place right upon the heads of the enemies. I mean, that's incredible. These hailstones, I mean, they they took out the enemies of Israel, yet did not touch Israel. God's controlling all this. It's exciting to partner with God when we realize we're not the sole proponent for seeing success happen. He will see his work through. God just wants us to have that blessing of partnership along with him in it. Because that's how we, we learn, we grow, and have confidence for trusting God. When we partner with him and see what he does, gives us greater confidence for the next task, the next mission, the next challenge that comes our way. Now, these large hailstones are gonna come again in a future time to do God's work. We read in Revelation 16, 21, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. That's about 100, 120 pounds, a talent. That's they're big hailstones. It says, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. Job 38, verse 22 to 23. Have you entered the treasury of snow? He questions Job. Or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I've reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Oh, we've not begun to see what God is able to do. We've not entered into his treasury to see what he's capable of. Just think about the resources God has at his disposal. And then lastly, we see prayer, this progression of Joshua moving ahead in battle. That's seen in our next section here. Look at verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon in the valley of Agilon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And there's been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So here Joshua again, he prays. He asks the Lord for help in this battle. And he speaks to the sun to stand still. Joshua found that there just wasn't enough time in the day to get the job done. So he prays a, a remarkable prayer of faith here. He speaks to the sun and the moon to stand still. Have you ever felt like you've been in Joshua sandals before where you feel like there's just not enough time in your day to get everything done, to accomplish all that's before you? It can be in those times where we find ourselves straying from Jesus and, and dismissing our time with him thinking, you know what, I've got so many tasks before me, so many things to do, Lord, and we tend to kind of drift away from the Lord. But like Joshua, we need to speak to the son, not the S-U-N, the S-O-N. We need to look to Jesus in those times even more so that we feel we don't have the time. As we do, we find that everything now around us seems to just stop spinning out of control. Things seem to slow down to a manageable pace as we bring the Lord into it, as we turn to the Lord in faith and say, I need you, Jesus. 
I need you right now. You're what really counts in this time. Though I'm overwhelmed with what's before me, though I've got things happening, Lord, I need you more than ever. And as we pray and bring the Lord into it, man, we just tend to see that help needed and that strength to continue on. Now, there are many people that have tried to kind of explain away this miracle. This is pretty huge. Like I said, do you think, you know, the walls of Jericho coming down was significant? And it was. I mean, seeing the sun and the moon stand still, that's amazing. Now, in his discussion of this problem in the Christian view of science and scripture, Bernard Ram highlights four possible interpretations. First of all, that these words are just poetic. People of those days often wove references to the heavenly bodies in accounts of their victories, as in Judges 5.20, where Deborah and Brock claim that the very stars fought against their, their enemy. So they see this as nothing more than just kind of a, a description, you know, a poetic description uh, of something that was taking place without it actually being the reality of what took place. But it's interesting, there's the miracle of the hailstones. If they are poetical, what are they supposed to represent? If they are not, then why should the stopping of the sun not be taken literally too? He goes on to say number two, another interpretation, number two is that the sun and the moon actually did stop. People who believe in an omnipotent God do not have difficulty accepting the possibility of even this great miracle of the Lord. Number three interpretation, it's a miracle of refraction of the sun's rays that made it seem as if the sun and moon were out of their regular places. Again, kind of like when you have a long day in the, in the Northern Hemisphere or something like that, that just kind of the way that the sun was reflecting, it just provided greater light in that time. Number four interpretation, Joshua did not ask for a longer day, but rather for a release from the day's great heat. <laughs> so they were enabled to continue to fight without the sweltering sun beating um, down on them. The Hebrew verb dom, which most of the English versions translate as stand still, usually means be silent, cease, or leave off. So because of that, some have suggested that Joshua, in the heat of the day, requested the sun cease shining, and that God's answer was the hailstorm that not only brought refreshment to his soldiers so they could do the work of a full day and a half a day, but also brought destruction to his enemy. In the end, we don't need to try to give explanations or explain away a miracle that God did. We know that God is a miracle working God and that he is indeed an omnipotent God where nothing is too hard for the Lord. So the Bible says that the sun and moon stood still, then that's good enough for me. He can do anything he wants. Now, regarding the book of Jasher, some may ask why it's not included in the canon scripture if it's quoted here in the scripture. It's also quoted in Second uh, Samuel chapter one. Well, this book wasn't included in scripture because it was never intended to be. God directed what books were to make up the Bible. And we know that what we have today is the complete God-inspired, infallible word of God. There's no lasting uh, copies of the book of Joshua today, but God had his authors at times, his authors of the Bible, uh, quote or use various extra biblical sources to show that what the Bible records was not happening in, in isolation. It's like Joshua could say, listen, if you don't believe my words, it's also backed up in the book of Joshua. He's recording it too for you. Now, why did Joshua feel the need to have such urgency in, in going against his kings? He, you know, he sees like, Lord, don't let the, uh, the, the sun go down, uh, you know, 
without me completing this, this mission? Why do you have such an urgency? Well, uh, no doubt it was to not allow the, the kings to escape and then begin to regroup back in their own uh, cities. But Matthew Henry provides some good application for us as well. Here's what Matthew Henry says. But why needed Joshua to put himself and his men so much to the stretch? Had not God promised him that without fail, he would deliver the enemies into his hand? It's true he had, but God's promises are intended not to slacken and supersede, but to quicken and encourage our endeavors. He that believeth does not make haste to anticipate providence, but does make haste to attend it with a diligent, not a distrustful speed. And it says that there's been no day like that. It's been no day like that. You know, that too is gonna be our response when we walk in obedience and trust the Lord and seek the Lord and be led of the Lord. When we partner with him and see him at work, we'll say, man, there's no day like it. What a great day it has been today as we walk with the Lord and partner with him and serve him in obedience. Well, verse 15, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua saying, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished, that those who escaped entered fortified cities. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Now, what's interesting is it might seem a bit of a contradiction when we read in verse 15 that the men of Israel returned to their camp at Gilgal, which is again, way up uh, further north from where they are now. And then we read in verse 21 that they returned to camp at, at Makeda. You know, which one is it? Is there a contradiction here? Well, no contradiction. It's most likely that verse 15 was kind of connected to the poetic language used in the book of Jasher when it's detailing what happened with the sun and the moon and then just encompassing the whole story that after all this, they returned back to Gilgal, which they did. And in fact, it's going to record that in verse 43 of this chapter with the exact same, uh, uh, written exactly the same verbatim as is in verse 15. So we know they're going to get there, but right now they end up in Makeda where these kings have fled to. And we read as they return to Makeda that no one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. That's a way of saying that, that no one posed a threat or resisted against the Israelites that all of Israel came to Makeda in peace. See, isn't that great? When we let the Lord fight our battles and we move along in his program, things are a lot more peaceful, isn't it? Return in peace, there's no threat. No one dared lay a hand on the people of Israel. Verse 22, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they drew near and put their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Be strong and a good courage for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Now, this might seem 
like a bit of a, a ruthless kind of tactic to take, you know, putting your foot on the neck of these people. But that was a common thing to do in battle here in the ancient Near East. It represented complete control and subjugation over the reigning powers of those places. And so by Israel doing that, uh, it's really just signifying we've defeated you and we're now the ones that are, are reigning in this place and, and not you. And Joshua repeated the words given to him by the Lord in chapter one, when he says to all the people uh, to be strong and of good courage. Don't be afraid, don't be dismayed, be strong. That's what Joshua had to hear time and time again as God reiterated those words to him in calling him to that mission here now as leading Israel. Joshua to hear those words and now he's reminding the people around him, hey, be strong and of good courage. It would have been a great encouragement and confidence booster for the people of Israel in future battles to hear these words and to see now again the, the victory that they're gaining in and through the Lord. Verse 26, and afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees and they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. On that day, verse 28, Joshua took Machida and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. He also did to the king of Machida as he had done to the king of Jericho. So notice Joshua didn't, you know, keep these men around as trophies, didn't kind of hide them out in the cave and bring them out time and time and pray them around and say, listen, we got the victory over these guys. No, he brings an end to them. He puts them to death. You know, so much of our struggles and defeats happen because we have not dealt with the flesh properly. We've not crucified the flesh. Sometimes we think we can tuck it away or, or cover it up and feel like we can control it. But the Bible calls us to crucify the flesh, put it to death. Joshua, it says in verse 20, didn't let anything remain. We're gonna see that term repeated time and time again here till the end of the chapter, let nothing remain. See, if we allow areas of the flesh to remain, it gives the enemy something to grab onto. But the enemy will have little arsenal if we have died to the flesh and crucified it fully. That's the victorious life that the whole book of Joshua is really revealing to us. As we, you know, cross over the Jordan and we walk, we're, we're walking into this fullness of life that the Lord has for us. It's not a picture going into heaven, like we said. It's a picture of the spirit-filled life, a life that's given over to the spirit that's died to self, laid the self down, and is now filled with overflowing in and moving ahead in the things of the spirit. That's where you walk in victory. That's what the book of Joshua is a great picture of and reminder for us here. Being dead to sin and alive in the spirit. Well, verse 29 to 30 deals with Israel's defeat over the Canaanite city of Libna. Verse 31 to 32 deals with their defeat over the city of Lachish. Uh, here's a, a little map. In fact, let me bring up this map right here. This shows the path where they came from Gilgal over to Gibeon, where the kings, now on the blue lines, the kings all gathered to come out to Gibeon where they're routed. And they were forced up along that red line to uh, along the, the valley of Agilon. And then they ended up down in Machida, 
where we see them put to death. And now they go and they begin to take out all these cities around them there. And that's what we're reading. Verse 33, 35, they take out uh, the king of Gezer and defeat the Canaanite city of Eglon. Verse 36 to 37, they defeat the Canaanite city of Hebron. Verse 38 to 39, they deal with the city of Deber. And then in verse 40, we read this. Look at that with me, verse 40. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south and the lowland and the wilderness slopes and all their kings. Again, notice this, he left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Again, that can seem very harsh. A lot of people will look at these things and, and look at the Bible as being such a, a brutal, barbaric, bloody book. Look at how they treated people. But again, remember, God has given all these people 430 years to repent. He's given them opportunity to turn them, and yet they've drifted further away in, in sin and, and to their own demise, hurting one another, doing brutal, brutal things. And God said, this cannot remain any longer. Eventually his judgment comes. Eventually it comes for all of us Have we allowed him to deal with our sin by putting our faith in Jesus. Because if not, eventually judgment is gonna come. You can allow that judgment to fall upon Jesus who mercifully took it for you or you can bear it yourself. And the Canaanites chose to allow that judgment to come upon themselves. And so God is having them taken out so that Israel can come along and continue to grow as a nation that's eventually gonna bring the Messiah into the world and do so without being tainted and corrupted by these nations that are so corrupted themselves. So it can sound brutal, but yet we see God's heart in this. And he's done so not without giving them a chance because he's certainly done that. But a common phrase, he let none remain. Again, so important that we not let anything of our old nature, nature have any room to grow or be resuscitated. Because if we don't destroy it, it will seek to destroy you. Verse 41 to 43, in closing, and Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon, all these kings and their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Notice we see Kadesh Barnea being mentioned here in verse 41. Kadesh Barnea, that's the place where the 10 spies sought out the land to see, can they take it? And those 10 spies came back with a bad report. But now it's the place of victory as Joshua and Caleb had believed all along. Why did they have such faith then? Because they knew the Lord God would bring them into the land and deliver the land to them. Now we're reminded here, notice what we read. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. It's the Lord God that's done it all. He's fought for Israel. He's led them in and he's gonna lead them through. And he's gonna secure and provide that victory. Why? Because he said he would. Josh and Caleb had that faith all along. The 10 spies didn't, they perished. But here they are now, seeing the victory that was promised to them all along. They're reminded that the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. He's the one that leads us on in victory. May we be truly relying on him, trusting him, and turning to him in all things as we've seen, allowing him to lead us on in 
what he has for us. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these Old Testament pictures and promises that speak to us, Lord, even in our day and time. God, they're there for us to again reveal, God, all that you've done, but all that you want to do in our lives here today. So we thank you, God, for your goodness. We thank you that you fought for Israel and you've already fought for us, Lord. You've already sent your son to do all the work for us that we can walk in victory here today. May we do that, Lord, as we look to you, as we depend upon you and rely upon you. May we be those that are truly laying ourselves down, dying to the flesh and sin, crucifying it, that we might live all the more in you and for you. We need your help, Lord. We look to you. Have your way in us, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.